From Tallahassee, Florida's capital city, North Florida Baptist Church presents the Family Bible Hour. Take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to look today at a few verses from the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to look, uh, our text will be 5 through 12, but we'll not cover all 12 verses today. And as I told you earlier, the title of the message is Do Be. Before there was a Sesame Street, before there was a Barney, before there was a lot of what you have today, uh, SpongeBob, SquarePants, and whoever else is popular uh, today, Dora the Explorer, there was a romper room. How many of you are old enough to remember romper room? Would you raise your hand? Ah, yes. Romper room. How many of you are not old enough to remember romper room? Would you raise your hand? All right. Okay. And uh, how many of you are too old to remember romper room? A couple of you, maybe. I think these shows were syndicated, so there were different hostesses around the country. Uh, some of them, I guess, were uh, covered more than one region. My, my uh, host of romper room in Nashville was Miss Norma. And uh, Miss Norma would, would hold up her little uh, magic mirror, and she'd say, romper, stomper, bumper, boo, tell me, tell me, tell me, do. Have my boys and girls today been good boys and girls at play? And then the uh, mirror would become clear, and she could see right through that. And she could see me. And uh, there were times that she called my name. She said, I see that Randy has been a good boy today. And uh, I was so excited about that. And, and um, I still think that people are talking to me when they're on television. But uh, I got that from her. One feature of the program was the doobie feature of the program. And uh, I, I know that you teenagers love when Pastor Ray talks about his childhood. So I'm going to give you a little walkthrough my childhood. Now, you have uh, iPads and iPhones, and you have a lot of uh, interactive things, Xboxes and so on. However, I had the doobie. Listen to this. I always do what's right. I never do anything wrong. I'm a rock room doobie, a doobie all day long. Sing along if you'd like. Yay! How awesome. By the way, kids, we grew up to be your parents and grandparents. So there is a reason. Jesus begins the greatest message ever preached with a positive message. It's a do-be message. 
tells his followers how they should live life and what they should be doing. The first part of the Sermon on the Mount is called the Beatitudes. And a simple understanding is that we should be of these certain attitudes that are espoused in verses 2 through 12. And the opening emphasis of the first sermon preached by Jesus is a positive emphasis. He tells them these are the things that you should have going in your life. We're going to read them all today, but we'll not have time to cover them all. So we'll come back to the Beatitudes next Sunday. Think of this as a formula for happiness in all of the circumstances of your life. Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Each of these beatitudes has a a certain amount of irony to it. There is a a perfection in what appears to be an imperfection. The advice seems to be the opposite of what we really ought to be doing or what would really bring us happiness, what would really uh, bring us joy. Uh, A a doobie is is what most of us don't want to be, the kind of things that we're talking about today. So we're going to see how they are perfect and how being these things that seem to be rather unlikely are the things that we really should be doing. First of all, the perfect spirit. The perfect spirit is one that all of us can have and all of us should have. Going back to the text, it said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, there's a big difference between being poor spirited and being poor in spirit. A lot of people misread or misapply the scripture. They'll say, well, the Bible says, blessed are the poor. The Bible says, blessed are the poor in spirit. And it does not say, blessed are the poor spirited. There are those who are poor in spirit. Uh, Those who are poor in spirit may, or poor spirited, may think of themselves in a way that handicaps them in life. God wasn't trying to give us a handicap in life when he said, blessed are the poor in spirit. He wasn't trying to get us to think lowly of ourselves or think down of ourselves. Oftentimes, the measure of someone who is poor-spirited, the measure of life is such that someone else comes out ahead of them, leaving them feeling inferior because they are poor-spirited. I'm poor-spirited because I'm not as good as you. I don't have this that you might have, or I've not learned these things that you might have learned. I might not be in a position that you're in, and on and on it goes. Is that the way that God meant this? Is this what Jesus intended for us to feel? Did he intended for us to feel inferior? And he says, it's a great thing when you feel inferior. It's a great thing when you're down on yourself. You know what? You have the, when you're down on yourself, you have the kingdom of God at your fingertips. 
Is that the perfect spirit? There's a website that allows you, I found it this past week in studying for this message, a website that allows you to measure yourself by the opinions of others. I'm not going to give you the website because A, it's just dumb. And I don't want any of you going to this web address. It's just absolutely ridiculous. But the premise of the web address is that you submit a picture of yourself and you get rated by others on the site on a scale from 1 to 10. They'll just look at you and they'll rate you from 1 to 10. And uh, you just you put your picture on there and, they, and they, they rate you. You can literally, this thing is so popular that you can literally watch the counter run up the score of people who are signing up to be rated or to rate somebody else. These poor suckers really want the opinion of a complete stranger as to their self-worth. And they're willing to do so by a picture. Now, I want to tell you something. That's someone who is poor-spirited. That's someone who has no idea where happiness is found. Happiness is not found in being poor-spirited. It's found in being poor in spirit. I'm sure that all of us make ourselves poor-spirited by unfounded and unfair comparisons in life. I sure wish I was like this person, or I sure wish I had that, or I sure wish I had done this, or if I had this to do over, and and we back ourselves into a corner of being poor-spirited. And we're poor-spirited because we're not seeing ourselves the way that we should see ourselves. I'm not as good as that person because I don't have as much. I don't know as much. I haven't been as far. I, I, I don't have the, the scope of authority that that person has. I don't have the number of friends that those people have. I'm just not good at, as that person. You know, the Bible cautions us about being poor-spirited and tells us how we get there. It says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 12, not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves, but when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. If being poor-spirited is not what Jesus is recommending, then what is he telling us? Is he, is he not saying that the best way for you to have happiness in life and be assured of the kingdom of God is to walk around and look and act dowdy? You should look like that, that you don't care about yourself and you should, should act as though that you don't care about yourself. You should have no sense of personal self-esteem at all. Is that what it means to inherit the kingdom of God? No, that is what it means to be poor-spirited, but it's not what it means to be poor in spirit. Jesus tells us that to be poor in spirit brings about what everybody wants, and what everybody wants is to inherit the kingdom of God. Now, how can being poor in spirit lead to an inheritance of the kingdom of God? Well, to be poor in spirit means that we understand our position, not in relationship to other people, but in relationship to God. If I look at my position in relationship to you, I may feel artificially superior or artificially inferior, but I will not see myself in light of God. And if I, even if I am poor spirited, I'll never be poor in spirit. In fact, I might develop a haughty spirit if I see myself in relationship to you or you see yourself in relationship to me. You might develop a haughty spirit. The haughty spirit isn't blessed of God. 
Well, if a haughty spirit is not blessed of God and to be poor spirited is not blessed of God, then how do you get to be poor in spirit? That's when you see yourself in light of God. When, when we humble ourselves and see ourselves in light of who God is and in light of his holiness, then we have the chance to be poor in spirit. It's the ultimate in humility, knowing that he is God and we are sinners. That's what it means to be poor in spirit, to know that he is God and we are not. Now, that sounds like a kind of a simplistic statement, but you know, there's a lot of people in this world today who think they're God. There are a lot of people that are walking around and, and, you know, God is just who I am and how I express myself. No, no, you can't come to being poor in spirit if you think that somehow or another you're God. Here's what the Bible says about me and you. Romans 3.10, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Hang on just a minute, preacher. You're telling us we don't even do any good? Well, I'm telling you that by our measure, we all do good. But by the measure of God, which is absolute perfection and holiness, we fall way short of his holiness. While some people have the problem of a poor spirit, others have too high an evaluation of themselves because they cannot humble themselves before God and come to realize that, you know what, in the end, when I go face my maker, my measure is my maker. My measure isn't my peer group. My measure is something else and someone else altogether. To that spirit, God's Word gives this warning, Romans 12, 3, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. The perfect spirit is to feel adequate in who God made you, humbled by the greatness and holiness of God and dependent on God completely to make you who you ought to be. That's what being poor in spirit is. Being poor in spirit is to realize that before God, I'm nothing, but with God, I can do anything. The apostle Paul said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You know what he was being? He was being poor in spirit. He wasn't saying, I'm all that. He wasn't saying, uh, I'm, I'm great. He wasn't saying you ought to try to be who I am. He was saying, I can do all things, get this, through Christ. He's the one who strengthens me. What do you mean he's the one who strengthens you? Well, without him, I am nothing. If I can do all things with him, the opposite is that without him, I can do nothing. There are very few areas in life where having this understanding will not benefit you. As long as you understand that God is the ultimate greatness, that God is the ultimate goodness, that God is the ultimate holiness, and we become great and we become good and we become holy only in measure to how we yield our members to God and allow Him to use us. And in ourselves, there is no good thing. I've told you this before, I'm not going to belabor the point, but we're born sinning. You know, I believe with all of my heart. I mean, kids, when they're born, when they're first born, they cry and carry on. If they were born 
with a perfect, uh, a perfected holiness, wouldn't they be born singing? Holy, holy, holy. Hello, Doc, how are you? You know, that kind of thing. Not so. The perfect spirit is to see ourselves honestly and to be poor in spirit. What's the perfect understanding? There's a perfect spirit and there's a perfect understanding. All of us are aware of the huge issue at Penn State when assistant coach Jerry Sandusky was found to have been molesting young boys and and doing so for years with the knowledge of several leaders of the university and in the athletic program. And when this came to light, there was a lot of mourning over the consequences for Penn State. A lot of mourning. It was nationwide. It was all of the sports world was mourning over the circumstances of Penn State. There was mourning over the wins that would be vacated. There was mourning over the huge sanctions put on the teams. There was mourning over the lawsuits that lay ahead. There was mourning over taking down the statue of Coach Paterno. And occasionally you could find someone mourning for the victims. There was a lot of mourning that was going on. Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Is this what he's talking about? When your team loses and you mourn over it, is this the blessed comfort that he's talking about? When, you're, when you lose money in the stock market, is this the, the blessed comfort that he is talking about? Does, does verse 4, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted, does that apply to every heartache? Does that apply to every problem that we have? What about all of those problems that we bring on to ourselves? What about when we are crying over spilt milk? Is that a blessed morning? When someone hurts our feelings, is that a blessed morning? When somebody just just hauls off and hurts your feelings, does God say, well, blessed are you that mourn, for you shall be comforted. Verse 4 should be taken in context. Every text has a context. And verse 4 should be taken in the context of verse 3. To be poor in spirit is to see ourselves in the light of God's holiness. To mourn is to regret or repent for the sinful state of our lives. Let let me show you why that works out best for us. 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, what does the word confess mean? The word confess in the original language of the Bible means to agree with God. It means, God, I'm right with you on this. I understand. You say this is a sin, I'm right there with you. I understand that it's a sin. And the Bible says, if we agree with God about our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When we agree with God, we are in the right frame of mind to be comforted because when we agree with God about our sins, we mourn over our sins. Do you remember at the crucifixion when, when the earth turned black and, and there was darkness on the face of the earth and the veil was rent in the temple? Do you remember that as Jesus hung on the cross of Calvary? Do you know why 
in my opinion, this is, my, this is thus saith the Randy, okay? When you get to heaven, you might find it differently. But here's what I believe. I believe that the reason that, that everything turned dark on the face of the earth and the veil was rent in twain, I believe it's because that God the Father turned his face in mourning in seeing his son Jesus become sin. The one thing that is so despicable to God the Father is sin. And Jesus, in fact, Jesus Christ resisted the sin so much that in the garden where he prayed, he sweat, as it were, great drops of blood. And he said in the book of Hebrews, for us to consider him because we've not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin. But if we could get to that place, if we could come to that place of saying, I see sin the way that God sees sin. I see my sin the way that God sees sin. I see sin the way that the Father sees sin. If we could come to that place, that's when we can know absolutely certain that we have blessed mourning. Blessed are those that mourn, for they shall be comforted. When we realize that we're sinners and we mourn about that sin, when I was a kid, uh, in our church, we had a mourner's bench. Uh, I'm, I'm not an advocate necessarily of it, but we had an, a mourner's bench in, in our church. And literally, that was for the purpose of coming up and mourning over your sins. I don't think we mourn very much over our sins. In fact, here's what we say. I'm not all that bad. Come on. I know a lot of people that's worse than me. Well, you know what? So do I. I know a lot of people that are worse than me and a lot of people that are worse than you. But is that the measure? Well, that won't bring you to mourning over your sins, I'll tell you that. You have to see yourself in light of God. There's no comfort in a high-handed spirit with God about anything, especially about the sinfulness of sin in our lives. If you are given to saying things like, well, that isn't as bad as as uh, what somebody else is doing, then you're not in agreement with God about your sin. Our standing with God is not in, on some scale with someone else's standing with God. They must deal with God in light of who they are, and we must deal with God in light of who we are. I, I, to be perfectly frank with you, now, there are, there are a lot of sins that, that are disturbing and, you know, they'll get into your life and they'll bother your life when somebody else is uh, in sin and so forth. But the reality is that if you really see your own sin properly, you cannot be overly concerned about somebody else's sin. I mean, that's just the truth. I mean, where, upon what basis can we judge somebody else when we see our own selves uh, properly? We have no way of knowing how God is measuring somebody else's sin. In fact, we're not even sure how God measures our own sin. I, I, I say this carefully, but if I could go through and I could name some big sins. I mean, some big, I mean, we place them up here in like the hall of fame of sin. These are huge sins. But we don't know what God's hall of fame of sin looks like. Jealousy may be in God's Hall of Fame sin. Murmuring may be in God's Hall of Fame. Gossiping may be in God's Hall of Fame. I don't know what's in God's Hall of Fame. I know what's in mine. I know what's in my Hall of Fame. But, but see, I have, to be, I have to be very careful because 
I, I have to have a poor, uh, be poor in spirit. And if, I, if I'm poor in spirit, it means that I'm looking at God in light of who he is and, and understanding who I am and mourning over who I am. So I really can't be worrying too much about my hall of fame of sin. I have to be concerned about his hall of fame. And I don't want to be in his hall of fame of, of sin. Are you getting that? Y'all are staring at me. Somebody say amen or do something. You getting that? Okay, good. We have to assume that all sin is as bad as it can be when placed in the light of God's holiness. All of it is. You know, we really have, we become so accustomed to our own. I I, I preached it at the uh, FCI Wednesday night. Loved it. Loved it, Arthur. I preached at FCI Wednesday night. But here's what we do. We become accustomed to our own sin. And we don't see our own sin. We don't experience our own sin. And I told the ladies the other night, I said, it's like smelling bad. I said, you know how sometimes you, you, you maybe didn't take the bath that you ought to and, and, and you smell bad, but you don't know it. Everybody else knows it. You know, you, you walk in, come in from outside, get that low-grade sweat smell and, you know, yikes. And I said, now that's bad, but I'm going to tell you when it's really bad, when you can smell yourself. When you can smell yourself, you show enough stink. I'll tell you right now. You really do. Now, see, my problem is that, that there are a few sins that I've got going in my life, or I could have going in my life, I better say it that way, that I could have going in my life, that when I sin those sins, I can, I can smell myself. But for the most part, I am accustomed to the sins in my life, and I don't see them the way that God sees them. That being said, God is not accustomed to the sins in my life, and I am so thankful that he sees me through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ because had I not come to a blessed poor spirit one day and confess my sins to him and receive Jesus Christ as my Savior, I'd be in trouble today. Serious trouble. Here's how the Apostle Paul put it in his letter to the Romans. Romans 7, 13, did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through, that, uh, through what is good. In order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. One of the greatest blessings you or I can have is when sin is revealed to us by God. When God speaks to us by the convicting power of the Holy Spirit to show us our own sins, to ask us what we're doing here and why we've made this bad decision or whatever, that's a step toward being comforted. Conviction, being convicted, feeling bad, if you will, about what you've done is a step toward being comforted because at least it moves you toward mourning. As bad as it feels to be convicted of our sins, it feels that much better to be forgiven of our sins. We are forgiven of our sins when we agree with God. That is the route to salvation, and that is the way to keep our relationship close to Him. Again, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The perfect understanding for you and me is to realize that at all times we are sinners saved by grace. We might want to step down from our high horse and see ourselves in the light of God's holiness and not our own self-righteousness. That, my friends, would be the third thing, the perfect attitude. We've seen the perfect spirit, the perfect understanding. What is the perfect attitude? 
Well, verse 5 of Matthew 5, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. That's the perfect attitude. Many years ago, we had a football player here at North Florida Christian School. His name was Constantine Ritzman. And he was an exchange student from Germany, and he turned out to be one of the best players that we've ever had uh, at North Florida Christian School. He received Christ as his Savior here, and he began dating a fine Christian girl and eventually married her, and they're married, and I think live in Atlanta now. Constantine went on to play football at the University of Tennessee, and then after he graduated from the University of Tennessee, he played football at, uh, the, for the Buffalo Bills, and he was a, a defensive end. His first game here was an unusual situation because we actually played a California team. We had worked up a, an exchange between a California team. This California team was coming in, and they were going to play us here, and then next year we were going to go to California, and we were going to play them there. And they were a state championship team out there, and uh, we were a state championship team here. And uh, they came, and they, I guess, I don't know how they got here, but they arrived on, uh, got campus in their bus, and, and when, when they came on the bus, the, uh, and this was the very first game, that Con- first week that Constantine had been here. And uh, they, they got off the bus, and the quarterback, the quarterback did something so foolish. He came out onto our field, and he reached down, and he, he put his hand down in the dirt and loosened up the dirt, and he pulled up a clump of sod from our field, and he held it up. And all of his classmates and teammates, yay! <laughs> We're going to own these guys. Well, that night, um, the first series of downs, they ran a sweep around the end that Constantine was defending. And before this young guy, this quarterback, ever got out of the, the backfield, Constantine tackled him face to face, drove him into the ground. He's laying flat on his back, and this big giant Constantine Richmond is laying on top of him and looks at him and says, Welcome to Florida. <laughs> that boy definitely inherited the earth, but, <laughs> but it wasn't because he, he was meek. What does that mean to be meek, that the meek shall inherit the earth? Well, to be meek does not mean to be weak. If so, then Moses and Jesus himself were weak because the Bible said that they were meek. Numbers 12 and verse 3, now the man Moses was very meek more than all the people who were on the face of the earth. Matthew eleven twenty nine. 29, take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. Now, there's two meek individuals, Jesus and Moses, yet you'll recall that both Moses and Jesus had times where they displayed righteous indignation. uh, Moses, when he broke the tablets of stone, and Jesus, when he turned over the tables of stone, when the temple was being used as a marketplace. Meekness and weakness are not the same thing. Here's what meekness is. Meekness is to have a deliberate, gentle spirit. An unbroken horse is a scary creature. However, when the same horse is tamed, it becomes a thing of beauty, something admired and desired. There are a lot of powerful people who are not admired or desired because they lack a gentle spirit. They're not meek. 
When we tame our spirit and harness the power that we have in life, we become that person that God blesses with the inheritance of the earth. And don't forget that one day the believer will reign with Jesus Christ on this earth. And this verse tells us something of how God sees our role in his kingdom to come. Could it be that when we harness our sense of personal power and use it for his good in a gentle manner that God takes notice and and looks toward the day when we will rule with him on the earth? Is that what it means? It means something, and and it must be good because Jesus called it blessed. People gentle people are happy and assured of inheritance to come, inheritance to come. I like that. Now there's, all of us are thinking today about areas where we need to work on something. Maybe somebody says, I've been poor spirited, but I need to be poor in spirit. And somebody else says, well, I, uh, uh, I, I think that, that my problem is that, that I have not mourned for the right thing. I've mourned because I didn't get my way. I didn't mourn over my sin." in my sinful way. And somebody else might say, well, you know something, I've been a little haughty instead of meek. I'm not a gentle person. I I want people to know how much power I've got. And I want them to know they've tangled with the wrong person. When in fact, Jesus said, the best thing for you to do is to have that gentle spirit instead of that steamroller spirit. Poor in spirit, mourning in the light of the a holy God, and gentle in spirit are all postures of life that, that can and does give us a blessing. They are perfect postures in life. There's one more I want to share with you today, and that is the perfect desire. In verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Here's one of those verses that is so simple yet so powerful. It begins with something that all of us understand, hungering and thirsting. We all understand that. This is part of our everyday life. We hunger and thirst throughout the day. We eat when we're hungry, and and it's so much more rewarding to eat when you're hungry instead of out out of habit. You ever gotten up and just out of habit, gone to the pantry or gone to the refrigerator and looked? Eh, well, what do I really want? I don't. But then sometimes you're, you're really hungry. You'll just eat anything because you're not going to be denied. You're going to be filled. A really thirsty person is really quenched. A half-hearted thirsty person just sips on something. Everyone understands hungry and thirsty. Again, we have to take this in the context of all that's been said thus far. And, and the hunger and the thirst that is blessed of God is the desire for God's righteousness on and in and around our lives. If, if you are hungry and thirsty to live for God and hungry and thirsty for God to live through you and God to be uh, in your life and on your life, then you're blessed. Psalm 42, 1. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. Here's what happens when this is our heart for God. First of all, we're satisfied. The word shall is an imperative meaning that we will not be denied. We are going to get something to satisfy our soul. When you really are hungry or thirsty, you're not going to be. I've got to have something. I've just got to have something. I don't care what it is. Mayonnaise on bread. I got to have something. I got to put something in me. 
I am hungry. I am thirsty. When we get like that for God, you know what? God says that's a good thing because you will be filled. There comes a time when some find that being close to God and living His will is the most important desire of their life. That's the hungering and thirsting of their their souls. Do you know why more people do not come to that place? Because we're all full of something else. We've got other things that have filled our lives. We've got other things that fill the time of our lives and fill the, the desire of our lives. So that we're just so full that we miss out on the very best thing. The hungering and thirsting after righteousness. Here's your verse that I'm guessing many of you didn't even know is in the Bible. Proverbs chapter 27 and verse 7. One who is full loathes honey, but to one who is hungry, every bitter thing is sweet. That all depends. See, it, that, that's kind of the way church is. And pardon me for just using church, but I'll use it this way. When you come to church hungry, just hungry, oh man, I am so hungry to hear from God. I am so hungry to hear his word. I am so hungry to be, to get his blessing today. When you come like that, you're going to be filled. But if, if you come to God's house or just come to God in his word or whatever it may be with a little hors d'oeuvre plate and you're just sampling, let me just see how this tastes. Get a little of that. Let me just see how that tastes. Get a little of that. I want some of this right here. Ah, uh, maybe not. Let me go back down. Mm, mm, mm. What's wrong with you? Why can't you move on? I just can't decide. You walk up to that table hungry. You can decide real quick. I'm going to get all of these. That's it. Go ahead. I just got what it took to fill me up. Well, we ought to come to God's house. My question, I guess, in closing is this. How sweet is the word of God to you? How sweet is God's will to you? The sweetness of God is in direct proportion to our hunger and thirst for him. Do be hungry for God. Join us again next time for the Family Bible Hour.